Well, as parents uh, take the kids to the nursery today, I want to thank you for being here and um, being willing to sit under the preaching of God's Word is a privilege and uh, a joy for all believers, and it's a joy for me to be able to stand and preach each week and share with you what God has shown me and taught me. Um, Through my years of ministry, I've enjoyed the opportunity of doing premarital counseling with young couples. And uh, I've enjoyed that because it is a foundational um, component to a healthy marriage. To think about the roles of husbands and wives, uh, to think about the responsibilities, uh, the conflicts that, will, that may arise. Um, I get to share um, some of the, the poor decisions and the uh, things that Amy and I encountered through our marriage that that hopefully can be uh, a learning experience for other people. And I give people a questionnaire to fill out. And in that questionnaire, there's a couple questions that usually trip people up. And the questionnaire questions that I'm at, uh, referring to are, tell me the strengths and weaknesses of the marriage of your mom and dad. And typically that is a somewhat of a difficult pause in filling out that questionnaire Because in a person's heart, they don't want to talk bad about their parents. But the truth of the matter is, is it's a very important and purposeful question because the things that we uh, have observed and watched in our parents' marriages, we are prone to repeat. And so we have to identify those things and be able to work through them as whether good and healthy or, or unhealthy and wrong so that we might not repeat the sins of our parents. We could say then that um, in a way that these, this is an example for us, that even in the bad decisions that our parents made, they stand in the, uh, the past as teaching us, whether good or bad, of what to do or not to do in marriage. Now, not all of us had parents to teach us those things. And I'm thankful for the church that provides a biblical example of healthy marriages for young couples here today. We have a lot of seasoned veterans here uh, in the marriage community. And therefore, you uh, are standing as examples for us so that our younger families and younger couples and, and husbands and wives can learn how best to uh, be biblical in our understanding. And this is what Paul is doing in our passage today. He is laying forth for us the importance of learning from the past so that we can push forward in the present. And so today what we're going to look at is Paul's message to the Corinthians to live as holy people as they learn from the unholiness of the past. We know the story of Israel is a story of unfaithfulness. We know the people of Israel were uh, God's people, God's chosen people, but they failed God. They broke the covenant with God. And through that, uh, they faced His judgment and His rejection. And yet God was faithful. 
And so what Paul will do in these verses this afternoon is he will reflect upon the character of God in leading the people uh, as their God and as their Lord, but he will show and, and, and bring to the surface the reminder of their unfaithfulness. And he tells us twice why he does that. Why harp on the past, Lord? Why remind us of their great failures? He tells us twice so that they might be an example for us. So that we might learn from their failures. As we learned today, as we sung today, as we thought about uh, the quote that, that Adam even read from John Street, we are constantly struggling with sin even as believers. We are constantly um, struggling with uh, the temptation to live unholy lives in an unholy world as God's holy people. And so we must constantly, constantly be urged to turn from sin and to be holy people. And this all ties and connects back to Paul's message in Christian liberty. And particularly, he is transitioning uh, from his uh, final statements of chapter 9, where he metaphorically is talking about the race that we run. Now, particularly and specifically, he was talking about his gospel ministry, but in, in essence, we said that it, it's, it's similarly our gospel ministry. That our Christian walk and our focus on gospel ministry is a race that we must run, not just to run, but to win. So we can interpret that then to mean that God wants us to do all things to succeed as believers in Jesus Christ. And we can't succeed if we are not gospel witnesses, and we cannot succeed if we do not have a gospel testimony. And we are living lives reflective of the gospel. And so we touched on this a little bit last week, and we're going to dive into it more deeply as Paul urges us to discipline our body, make it our slave, so that we might not be disqualified. And in the challenge for us, and in Paul's messages, here's one way that you won't be disqualified as a believer. Look to the past and see the, the family of Israel that failed the Lord in their unholiness and watch the judgment that they faced because of it and learn from it. So we are seeking to learn from the past how to live in the present as God's holy people. So let's look at that today. And we'll all be focusing on this centered around the character of God. And this is what Paul does. So number one, we're going to look at a faithful God among unfaithful people. Paul begins by telling us that we must be aware he uses the negative and says, Brothers, I don't want you to be aware that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that was the rock who is Christ. Notice the, the, the comprehensive language there. They were all enjoying these things as a nation of people. Israel was a nation. And we need to distinguish that as we learn from the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Israel, as a people, was a nation of people. Therefore, they were physically called into relationship with God, while we are spiritually called into a relationship with God. 
And there is a distinction that we need to understand because as the church, we are not a nation. Israel was a nation. And therefore, they experienced as a nation the blessings of God because they inherited uh, these things through covenant. And so when we read even this, uh, this summary here, we see Paul establishing God's faithfulness to all of Israel. They all enjoyed the presence of God, as it says, as they were under the cloud, as they passed through the Red Sea. Paul is talking about them as a people, but as a nation of people, they are our spiritual family. Because through the old covenant, God established these people as a nation, but in the, in the church, we're not a nation, we're just a people. And yet these people are connected to us. They are connected to us through God, through the one who called them to himself. And therefore, he rained blessing on them because of his covenant keeping love that he displayed. The same covenant keeping love that he displays for us as the church. And we celebrate the, the ways in which we can see God's faithfulness with our spiritual ancestors that God has shown us through the Word of God. And He tells us and shows us a couple ways in which we can rejoice in His faithfulness, even in Israel's unfaithfulness. Notice what it says. It says that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is speaking of the relationship of Israel to Yahweh. There they were being under the cloud. This was the guidance and the direction of the Lord manifested in the cloud of, uh, that, that, that was present through Israel's history. As you know, when Israel was assembled, coming out of, of, of uh, Egypt and escaping Egypt in captivity, God reflected Himself or displayed Himself in the form of a cloud by day and fire by night. Okay? This was literally the manifestation of God for the people of Israel to see. And so this cloud was important. The cloud led Israel from Egypt through the, prom- uh, through the wilderness to the promised land. The same cloud rested when the cloud rested, the people stopped traveling. When the cloud took, kept going, the people followed the cloud. It was literally the Lord guiding them and directing them. Even more interesting, when they settled in a, a certain place and they erected the tabernacle, the, literally, the cloud would literally rest upon the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, as a reflection and a reminder that God was with His people. And so what Paul is saying is he's explaining that as Israel was under the cloud, they were literally in relationship with God, being led by Him and guided by Him. And in the same way, this God not only dwelt among them in the form of a cloud, but He he led them through the Red Sea as they passed through the sea. We know that the Exodus story and them escaping Israel was a... A a characteristic of God's faithful power for His people. He was providing salvation as their Savior by helping them escape from the captivity in Egypt. 
And what Paul is doing is he's drawing upon these ideas to show us that the Exodus was a declaration of God's salvation for his people. He rescued them from captivity, showing his power and might. He led them in victory over his enemies with great power. And Paul says, we as God's people look back on that. We look back on that salvation as we look forward to what Jesus Christ did. And he's connecting for us this beautiful picture of God's faithfulness as a Savior. So here we are seeing all that God has done in the life of Israel as a Savior physically from captivity and spiritually our Savior providing His Son as the one who would deem, redeem mankind from their sin. Why is this all important? Because what Paul is doing is he is making a connection for us from the old past history of Israel to the church today. And what he will do is, is, is show us this faithfulness so that we can see that we have every reason to be obedient to the Lord. To follow in His steps. To live as holy people. He continues in verse 2. He says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now what this means is, is that Moses was not some equal to Christ. He was not their Lord. It means that Moses led them by the Lord's power to their salvation. And Paul begins to make this connection as they pass through the Red Sea, he's making the connection of spiritual salvation. And notice he uses the word baptism. He says they were baptized into Moses. Well, the, the imagery is here. They passed through the waters, and the passing through the waters was reflective of their salvation. In the same way that our salvation is reflected and symbolized in the passing of the waters where we are immersed in the water, we come forth in baptism to show a sign of what God has done. So here Paul is connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament in the beautiful picture of God. Because baptism is the standard for which we see God's um, or, or excuse me, baptism is the sign in which we, we are reminded of God's great miracle of saving us. Now I want you to think about it for a second. In Israel's history, when they thought about the Exodus, it was the pivotal, it was the primary event in their history to remind them of God's faithfulness. What is the primary event of history that reminds you of God's faithfulness? It's Christ. It's your salvation in Him. And therefore, for Israel, they are seeing the Red Sea. They are reminding of the Exodus. They are reminding of passing through the waters to remind them that God was faithful. But he goes even further in connecting this to us today. He says, And all ate the spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, this is a, a couple stories here. This is a story of them trans, uh, to, uh, walking through the wilderness. They're traveling through the wilderness. God provides manna from heaven. This manna fell on a daily provision. They were to collect what they needed for six days. On the sixth day, they were to collect two days' worth so they would not work on the Sabbath day. 
Any that they collected extra would wither and rot and spoil so that every day they had to walk outside and collect the food that they needed, showing them that what? God was faithful. He was their provider. He was their protector. He was their Savior. And they were reminded of that. And so as they traveled through the wilderness, God provided them food to eat, manna from heaven, meat from birds that He would provide for them every morning, and also food or water to drink. We know the story of, of, of Moses being commanded to, uh, to strike the rock and water came out of the rock. That doesn't sound like a big miracle. You can go to a national park and look at a waterfall and see water coming out of a rock. That doesn't seem like a great miracle. But the, the difference is, is that they were, the, the first instance that this happened was at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai was also called Mount Horeb. And the word Horeb literally means a dry and desolate place. Because they were not in a place that was flourishing with water. There was nothing to drink. They were in the wilderness. They were in the desert. It was, there was no, uh, uh, large amounts of water for them to drink. And so they were, they were literally seeing a miracle happen. The impossibility where God would show His power and bringing forth water out of nowhere so that they could see that their provisions were met. Now look what Paul's doing. He's looking back to Israel and he's reminding them of their salvation and he's connecting that salvation to baptism. But he's also connecting them to the food and the drink that they ate to remind them of God's provision. And what food and drink do we eat that reminds us of God's provision but the Lord's Supper? where we see and are reminded of the power of the juice that's not power in the juice, it's just reflective of the power that the juice represents. The power in the blood. The flesh that was given on our behalf. And so Paul is making these connections for us to see what? That God is a faithful God. He provided them spiritual salvation. He provi- or physical salvation. He provided them physical Provision in the same way that for the church, He provides for us spiritually. So what's His point? What's His point? Well, verse 5 is His point. Verse 5, He says, with all this that's happened, with all these provisions and all this physical salvation that happened to them, that's pointing forward to Christ, He says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they, laid, they were laid low in the wilderness. God was not pleased with them because they had broken and violated the covenant. They were not pleased with them because they were supposed to be the holy nation among unholy people. Just like the church today, they were called to be a representation of the glory of God in the face of evil. Holiness in the midst of evil. Set apart from the evil of the world. And instead, what did the people of Israel do? They incorporated the evil into their own religion. They brought evil within their midst. They syncretized the religion of of the Jews and, and, and the religion of their pagan neighbors and blended them together to appease the culture. To, to intermarry among uh, pagan people even though God had forgive, uh, forbid them to do such a thing. And therefore, God was not pleased. They were not living in obedience to the One who created them. 
And so Paul's whole point is simply this. We worship a faithful God who is displaying His faithfulness to unfaithful people. We are sinners, church. And we must understand that Paul's point for us is that we are set out to learn from the examples of Israel that we are set upon this race to run in such a way that we win. And running in such a way that we win is not only declaring Christ as king, but living as if he's king of our life. As if he rules over us. And therefore, we must live as holy people. We must turn away from evil. I had us read all the way to verse 14, even though I'm not going to get anywhere close to that today, where he says, Therefore, my brothers, flee from idolatry. What we're going to see in the remaining verses of chapter 10 is that in Corinth, it became such a problem because with the Christian liberty of the Corinthians, they began to feel so free that they began to mingle back into a world of idolatry. What Paul will show us is that while some people were just going and buying meat in the market, other people were going back to the temples and eating in the temples during the pagan feasts, thinking, I'm a Christian. It ain't going to hurt me. And yet by doing so, they were literally entering in to idolatry all over again. Now I want you to think about that as the church today. How tempted we are to blend ourselves with the culture as a way in which to reach the culture. Oh, well, well, I have to do these certain things, otherwise the culture won't even hear from me. So therefore, I have to act a certain way, and I have to look a certain way, so that the culture will accept me, and then I can share the gospel. We call that contextualization. But the problem with contextualization at times is that we end up watering down the gospel, ruining our testimony, going and entering into evil and unholiness, all for the sake of proclaiming the gospel instead of trusting the sufficiency of God's word, trusting the sovereignty of God to draw people to himself. Listen, we're not, I'm not standing up here and telling you not to love people. But when we don't stand for truth in this world and call evil evil, then we don't honor Christ. We don't honor his word. And we can't accurately proclaim the gospel if we are living like the pagans. They're not going to listen to the words that we say which proclaim a transformed message. So, we worship a faithful God who loves unfaithful people. Who is patient with unfaithful people. Who is dispensing His grace to unfaithful people. But secondly, not only a faithful God among unfaithful people, but secondly, a just God. A just God. The Bible tells us that we can learn from the examples of Israel so that we might be faithful, so that we might be holy, so that we might live as reflecting the holiness of our Creator, of our God. But what Israel shows us is that when we're not, we will face judgment. God does not deal lightly with sin. Paul turns back to Israel in verses 6 through 10, and he tells us this is what happens. Learn from their mistakes. The Lord was not 
pleased with them in verse 5. They were laid low in the wilderness. Why? Because they had fallen into evil. Look at verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us. The word example there is a type. It's a pattern. We can learn from these things as a, a pattern of what not to do. As a model of how not to live. Why? So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And so what Paul does in verses 7 down to verse 10 is he gives us commands. And in these commands, he is commanding the church while showing us the judgment that fell upon Israel for their unfaithfulness. Why were they judged? Is it because God's a mean God? Is it because He's not being patient enough? No, it's because God must punish sin 100% of the time. He does not ignore sin. He does not sweep sin under the rug. God in His own just character must punish sin. And therefore Israel, who was called to be set apart for evil of the world, instead adopted evil, and therefore God judged Israel as evil people. And so the commands for us and examples for us are as follows. These are commands for us to avoid idolatry and immorality. Flee idolatry and immorality. This is what Paul is saying. Verse 7, do not be idolaters. He says it differently in verse 14. Flee from idolatry. Paul points first to the most common of the sins of Israel, idolatry. We know the story of the golden calf as the most important and the most famous of those stories. What seemed almost immediately from the very salvation of their lives from Egyptian captivity, Israel falls into idolatry. There they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has left to go meet with the Lord. They have experienced the power of God through the ten, command, uh, the ten plagues on Egypt. They have experienced the power of God literally watching the Red Sea part in two and then crash again upon their enemies. They've seen the power of God at the foot of Mount Sinai as the liter- literally the mountain is shaking because of the glory and the holiness of God. And then Moses goes up the mountain and you know what they do? They revert back to probably the influences of their Egyptian captors and they fashion a golden calf by melting down the gold that they were given by the Egyptians and they fashion this calf and they begin to worship this calf as a substitute for God. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is finding a substitute to worship instead of the worship that's due to God and His name alone. And so we as a church are called to consider idolatry in our lives. What have we done and what are we doing where we have so fashioned in our lives substitutes for the worship that God deserves in our lives? That worship could be our families, our hobbies, our job, our image. All these things are idols of today. They don't have to be molded images of any God. In our culture, there's numerous temples 
that are erected. Numerous ways that we can direct our time and our attention and our resources to other things that is idol worship. John Calvin, or excuse me, I think John Owen said that the the human heart is an idol factory. That we literally are crafting idols day by day in our lives, finding some substitute to give our time and, and attention to instead of God Himself. So we are no different from Israel. But Israel did not just engage in idolatry, it literally they engaged in immorality as well. In verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some did and 23,000 fell in one day. This quote is uh, in in verse 6 or verse 7 is from Exodus 32. That as they were worshiping the Uh, in idolatry, they would not just worship where they were sitting down to eat and drinking and playing. This, This word play here does not mean team sports or board games. It actually is a perverted word. Because when Israel was worshiping the golden calf, they were getting drunk and they were engaged in sexually immoral acts as groups. There at the foot of the mountain at Mount Sinai. Things that they had learned from Egypt. There they had now brought about those things in, their, in the midst of, of the presence of God. And Paul, and Paul also mentions in verse 8 the story of Numbers chapter 25 where once again they fell into idolatry. This time adopting the, the pagan religion of the Moabites. Once again, participating in sexual morality in Numbers chapter 25, and therefore God destroyed over 24,000 people in one day. These are the things that Paul is reminding us where Israel was craving evil, engaging in immorality and idolatry, finding substitutes for the worship of God that He has created us to do on this earth. We were created to have intimacy with Him. And to have intimacy with Him and to have intimacy in the, in the confines of marriage with our spouses. Not in groups. Not with someone on the internet. And therefore God will judge Israel or judge Israel for their immorality and idolatry. And He did it in great number. And He does so because He has a right to judge sin. Because it's an expression of His just and holy nature. He is fair and right in killing the generations of Israel who worship that golden calf. Matter of fact, we know that Caleb and Joshua are the only ones that entered into the promised land from all the first generation that escaped Egypt. Why? Because the rest died and perished in the wilderness because of their immorality and idolatry. And so church, we must acknowledge the temptations in our context. We must evaluate what is an idol of my heart. What are the things in which I have found a substitute for that give me identity and satisfaction that I'm supposed to find in Christ alone? What are these things that are false gods in my life that I I sacrifice my time and my resources to 
that literally draw me away from worshiping my Creator to worshiping something else with my life. These are the things that are idolatry and they're sin against God. But secondly, not only does he say to flee sexual immorality and idolatry, but he says to flee discontentment. Now the word discontentment is not here, but this is what he's describing. Look at verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord, as some did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now we know the story of Numbers chapter 14, if you want to turn there. Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. This is a story of the, of the serpents that the Lord sent. The Lord sent, by the way as chastisement and discipline upon His people. Some people in our world will say, God is such an evil, menacing God who would send snakes upon His people to bite them and bring death upon them. But look at verse 2 of chapter 14. All the sons of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we have died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Numbers chapter 21, a couple pages over. Again, Israel complains. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, Numbers chapter 14, this is the story of the spies that go and look at the promised land, and they come back with a a scary report. And the report was, there's giants in the land, and Israel fell into fear. And what did they do when they feared? They began to complain against God. Now Paul calls it testing God and trying God. But ultimately what it is is that fear leads to discontentment. Here we are, they are discontent because their fear has led them to discontentment instead of faith leading them to courage. And in, and in complaining to God, look at what they said. They would rather be back in captivity. Would we have died in the land of Egypt? Or would we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Here they are beginning to declare to them, or to us, that when we fear... It leads us to discontentment, and that discontentment leads to grumbling and trying the Lord. We are literally doubting the very purpose and plan of God when we fall into discontentment, and that discontentment leads us to grumbling. Lord, why did you allow these things to happen? Why did you allow these things to happen? Why did you allow this this happen in my family or in my job? And we begin to fear, and that fear leads us to a state of discontentment where we are unhappy with God's purpose and plan for us 
And in doing so, we grumble against the very sovereignty of God and his plan for us. But the second instance in Numbers 21 is the story of the fiery serpents. Again, they're complaining to God and to Moses. They're rebelling against God. Again, looking back to Egypt as if that was a wonderful time in their history. Forgetting that they were in bondage. But here they are in Numbers chapter 21 complaining about the food that they've been given. Literally in chapter 21 verse 5 they say, We have no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. Wait, I thought you said there was no food. You mean you just don't like the food that you were given? That's the real issue. Sounds like a, ta- a conversation at dinner, the dinner table with your young kids, right? But, it, but what's amazing to me here is that with our fear that leads to discontentment, it also le- leads to a disconnect with reality. They literally thought that Egypt was a better place. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? They literally were looking backwards and going, our captivity would be better than this Lord, as if they knew better. And Paul is telling us that literally their discontentment, which led to their grumbling and their trying with the Lord, was a sin against God and all that he had done. All that he had shown them. It was a very act against his purposes and plans in the same way that that, that was an act of rebellion when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's plans in the garden. And so God laid waste in judgment to his people for their rebellion. In chapter, verse 8 of of 1 Corinthians, we're reminded that 23,000 fell in one day. In verse, in verse 9, we're reminded of numbers where they were destroyed by the serpents that bit them. And literally in, chap, in verse 10, the wording there is that they were destroyed by the destroyer, which references the angel of death that would come on behalf of God's command to destroy people. The same destroyer that, that was mentioned that would come into Egypt and lay waste to the Egyptians for their uh, defiance against God. And so we see the just nature of God's character as another reason why we are called to live holy lives. We are called to live holy lives because God is faithful. And in His faithfulness, He shows His love toward us. And He shows His grace toward us. An undeserving grace. A kindness and a love that we don't deserve. And therefore we should respond in holiness because He has shown such immeasurable grace to us. But we should also respond in obedience and holiness because His judgment is real. He will will justly bring judgment upon each one of us for our disobedience. The Bible calls it chastisement and discipline in the Bible because it relates to a father disciplining his children. This is why we always tell parents, parents, spank your kids, because it's the greatest picture of God's judgment in their life. Don't try to teach them about God's judgment and and withhold punishment from them. Because if they're going to believe that reality, that God is a just God, 
then you better spank them when they disobey and show them just a small measure of what punishment really is like, what discipline is really like. Now, that discipline can include love. That discipline can include grace and mercy. But it shows the reality that God's judgment is real. And the greatest example of that judgment didn't happen with Israel. It happened with God's Son. Paul is making this connection for the church in Corinth to run the race, to win, to be faithful, so that they may see that as Israel failed, Christ accomplished for us. So that we have an opportunity now to live holy lives because of Christ. And the greatest example of God's fierce judgment on sin was not when He destroyed 24,000 with Israel. Not when He sent the fiery serpents. The greatest example is when He poured His own wrath upon His Son on the cross. This judgment was not for the Son's sin. It was for our sin and the sins of His people. The Son, Jesus Christ, stood in the place as a substitute for sinners He took upon Himself the wages of sin, which is death, that people had committed. He was sinless in every way. He was perfect in every way. But He bore the shame and the guilt facing the wrath of God upon the cross. He wasn't facing agony from the nails and the the lashes. He was facing agony because His Father, as as we sing in the hymn, His Father turned His face away. He faced the separation of father and and son and the wrath of God upon Christ. And he did this so that he could save us. And so why do you live holy lives? Not because you're trying to earn salvation. Not because if you're an obedient person, God will save you. You live holy lives because Christ has already done all that's necessary. See, we needed someone to be faithful for us because as Israel shows us, we can't be faithful. And Christ comes into the picture and He lives the perfect life as the perfect Israel. As the Israel that we could never be. As an example, it's not by coincidence that when Jesus goes to meet the devil to be tempted, where does He go? To the wilderness. Why does he go to the wilderness? Because it was in the wilderness where Israel failed to be faithful. They succumbed to the temptations of Satan. They they succumbed to idolatry and immorality and grumbling and complaining. And so every one of those temptations of the Lord Jesus Christ by the devil was reflective of the failures of Israel that Jesus Christ accomplished for us upon the cross in His sinlessness, in His perfection, in His faithfulness until the end. He shows us and provides us the way of escape. We don't say this verse as much in this church, probably as we should, but John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. For those who do not receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, who do not trust in Him fully, 
by faith in the sacrifice that was made for them, they will perish. But if they believe in him, as John says, they will have everlasting life. They will be saved. Why? Because Romans 6 tells us that we need a free gift that is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need this free gift and it's given to us. And so friend, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've never understood the work of Christ upon the cross, let me tell you, it's your only way of escape from the wages of sin. It's the only way of escape from the just and wrath, uh, wrathful God who will punish all sin. And so believe in Him and trust in Him. Put your faith in Him that He alone can save. And the Bible tells us He will save you. It's not a, a, a delayed salvation. It's an immediate salvation. You put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, and He will save you today. And brother and sister, the people of God turn away from evil. We live in an evil and perverse world, and Satan wants you to believe that you have to live like the world, to connect with the world, to save the world. That is a lie from the devil. Trust in the sufficiency of God's Word that is capable of saving. Trust in the message of the Gospel that will save. Trust in the sovereignty of God that is doing the work to plow the fields and prepare the heart to receive the seed of the gospel, and they will believe. Friend, all you do is take the message. It's not a message you wrote. It's just a message you deliver. But as you deliver it, be conscious and aware of your own life that you are living a worthy life of the gospel, a one that reflects a holy life. First Peter tells us, That we are a chosen race, a holy nation, and we are called to live as holy people. Turn away from immorality. If immorality, sexual morality, and idolatry has gripped your life, the only response is repentance. The only response is to rid such things of your life that dishonor the Lord. If you have a grumbling nature, if you are discontent with your life, that He has given you. If you feel you're being mistreated by God with what He's given you at this point in your life, you need to understand that you are not sovereign, you are not Lord, He is Lord. This is what He's provided you. And they are good gifts, as the Bible tells us. We have no reason to doubt those gifts. And although the manna may get boring, it's nourishment for your body. And all the provision that you have, God has provided that in a gracious way, not because you deserve it, but because He's a good God. Turn from evil, flee idolatry and immorality, live in contentment in a relationship with Christ. And in doing so, we will praise His name. We will honor Him as our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. And we praise You for the challenge to flee evil and live as holy people. And we are thankful for Christ because without Him we could do nothing. 
As the Bible says, 